Welcome back to another edition of TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you so much for tuning in as we present a replay of our recent Bank of Texas Speaker Series event that brought together Robert Kaplan of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and Mark Gibson of JLL for a fireside chat about the future of our economy. It was an excellent conversation. I I certainly learned a lot from them both, and I'm sure that you will too. Whether you attended the lunch and are listening again, or if you're hearing them for the first time, that's coming up in just a bit. We'd also like to thank our speaker series sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News for supporting our organization and making programs like these possible. I'd like to take a moment to recognize today's sponsor, Grant Thornton. Founded in 1924, Grant Thornton is one of the world's leading organizations of independent audit, tax, and advisory firms. With dedicated real estate professionals across 59 offices, Grant Thornton's real estate team works with REITs, office, retail, and industrial owners and developers, and property management firms to help mitigate risk and strategically drive growth. Whether you're addressing new government regulations or seeking alternative financing sources, investigating new technologies, or considering strategies for performance improvements, Grant Thornton is here to help you build a strong foundation for the road ahead. As always, please subscribe to our podcast. We're available on most of the major platforms, from Apple iTunes to Spotify. Also, make sure you're following Trek on social media. We are at Trek Dallas on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. If you like what you hear on today's episode and you've got an idea for a future topic or guest, please email me at bsanantonio at recouncil.com or email Kelsey Holmes at k holmes at recouncil.com we'll link to both of those emails in the show notes and on our blog over at recouncil.com and now a replay of last month's bank of texas speaker series featuring robert kaplan of the federal reserve bank of dallas and mark gibson of jll right here on trackcast thank you Thank you all for being here today. Good morning or good afternoon. We're very close to the, to the middle of the day. My name is Jim Knight. I'm the founding principal of KFM Engineering Design and the chairman of the Real Estate Council. First thing I'd like to do is welcome you, our members and our guests, to today's Bank of Texas Speaker Series, the Capital Markets Update. Please join me now in thanking our sponsors for this event. We could not hold these events without their generous support, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, and the Dallas Morning News. Today we will be listening to a conversation between the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas President and CEO Robert Kaplan and JLLC CEO of Capital Markets in the Americas, Mark Gibson, about where the markets will be going in 2020. I know you'll all be excited to hear their report. First, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Mr. Gibson. Chief Executive Officer of Capital Markets for the Americas for JLL. Prior to joining JLL, Mark served as a CEO at HFF, where he was a founding partner, serving as both the executive and operating committees there. He earned a degree of business administration at the University of Texas at Austin. He is an executive committee member at the UT Real Estate Finance and Investment Center and an advisory council member at the McCombs School of Business. He is also an executive committee member and former board member of AFIRE, executive committee member for the Urban Land Institute, a trustee for ICSC, and he currently sits on the board at UT Southwestern University Hospital. The other half of our fireside chat discussion today is Mr. Robert Kaplan, who has served as the 13th president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas since 2015. Robert represents the 11th Federal Reserve District on the Federal Open Market Committee in the formulation of U.S. monetary policy and oversees the 1,200 employees of the Dallas Fed. He was also previously the Martin Marshall Professor of Management Practice and Senior Associate Dean at the Harvard Business School. Prior to joining Harvard in 2006, Kaplan was a Vice Chairman at Goldman Sachs, 
with global responsibility for the firm's investment banking and investment management divisions. He became a partner in 1990 and served as co-chairman of the firm's partnership committee. He was also a member of the management committee. Following his 23 years at Goldman Sachs, Kaplan became a senior director of the firm. He now serves also as chairman of the Project ALS and co-chairman of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, a global venture philanthropy firm that invests in developing nonprofit enterprises dedicated to addressing social issues. He is also a member of the Harvard Medical School Board. Born and raised in Prairie Village, Kansas, Mr. Kaplan received his Bachelor of Business Administration from the University of Kansas and a master's degree in business administration from the Harvard Business School. It is my great pleasure to introduce you, Mr. Mark Gibson and Mr. Robert Kaplan. Thank you. Thank you, good to see you. That was good. I think I'm sitting there. Sit wherever you, you, sit wherever you, sit you want. We'll do that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, Rob, for joining us. Thanks. Today. Great to be here. And it was a great crowd here. Thanks for everybody taking time out of your day. We know how difficult that is to do. And hopefully, we'll give quite a bit of take home value to you on capital markets. No one better to do that than Rob. And uh, just to give you an idea, we're, we're changing this up a little bit. So rather than just do a moderated session, I thought it might be better if Rob really gives you and all of us his view on the U.S. economy and, and what he's concerned about and how it's working, generally speaking, and then we'll go to Q&A. So be thinking about questions as he's going through his presentation, and we'll come back and address those a little bit later. So Rob? All right, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Uh, just, just curiosity. So how many of you are in the real estate business? Everybody. Anybody not in the real estate business? Not many, okay, fine. Uh, and uh, how many of you watch the stock market every day? And how many of you don't watch the stock market every day? All right, that's interesting, okay. So let me, um, let me make uh, some brief comments uh, about what's going on in the United States, the world, and maybe why it's happening. So I'll get, get first I'll go do the punchline. Uh, we, th we think at the Dallas Fed that the U.S. economy is gonna grow a little bit better than 2% in 2019. Grew 2.5% last year. Um, uh, it felt like it was growing more, but ultimately wound up growing with revisions 2.5%. Uh, and the first half of 2019, growth in the United States was 2.5% also. So for me to say growth this year is gonna be a little better than 2% means we're gonna grow in our view about 1.6, 1.7% in the second half of this year. So growth is decelerating to some extent. It's not a surprise. We had a very large fiscal stimulus uh, that had a big impact in 2018. We knew that fiscal stimulus was gonna wane. We'll talk more about it in the Q&A. We knew that was gonna wane. The part we probably didn't expect a year ago was the extent to which trade tensions were gonna be uh, such an issue for the U.S. economy. And starting in particular in April of this year when the China talks hit a snag, and then you had the threat against Mexico for tariffs, even though it didn't, because of the border, even though it didn't happen. We've seen manufacturing weaken in the United States. Business investment has been very sluggish. Uh, and global growth continues to decelerate. And global growth is very reliant on trade. So if trade globally is weak, which it is, then you can predict that global growth is going to be weak. On the bright side in the United States, the consumer is strong. Consumer is 70% of the economy. Uh, and my concern for most of this year has been, is global, if global growth continues to decelerate, manufacturing continues to be weak, which it's weaker than it's been in 10 years, and business fixed investment continues to be sluggish, is that gonna seep into other parts of the economy? 
to where eventually it's going to catch up with the service sector, it'll catch up with the consumer, and we start to see some moderation in the consumer, and then it will have a more severe slowing. I'm hopeful that won't happen, but in order to try to keep that from happening, I've been a, a supporter of, uh, of the Fed lowering the Fed funds rate in July, lowering the Fed funds rate in September, and as most of you seen, uh, last week we lowered the Fed funds rate again, although uh, I and others have sent a very strong signal that I think the setting of monetary policy now is probably appropriate. Uh, and unless there's some material change, uh, I think a setting of one and a half to one and three quarters on the Fed funds rate probably is in the range of where it should be. So, okay, so that's a snapshot on the economy. Let me mention one other thing, which is, which is really more significant for me and girds and underlies uh, all the work I do at the Fed. And that is structural drivers. What are the big structural drivers affecting the U.S. economy? And I've mentioned four. Uh, number one, U.S. population is aging. Workforce growth in the United States is slowing. This is happening in almost every advanced economy in the world. And why is it a big deal? It's a big deal uh, because if workforce growth is slowing, GDP growth in a country is made up of growth in the workforce and growth in productivity. And we know that our population is aging. And even with people working longer, we think the participation rate the rate at which 16, people 16 years old and older are working was 66% in 07. It's 63% roughly today. And we think it's on its way down to 61% over the next 10 years, mainly because of aging. And so that's number one trend. And we can talk more about it in the questions. Number two trend, now we can do something about it, by the way, uh, getting more women into the workforce, improving childcare, better transportation, and yes, it's a sensitive subject. Immigration has been a critical part of U.S. workforce growth for, all, for my entire life. 50% uh, of workforce growth in the United States over the last 20 years has been immigrants and their children. And in the next 20 years, it's our guess at the Dallas Fed, it'll be closer to 100%. So immigration plays a key role and I don't need to uh, get into the blow-by-blow blow on what's been going on there, but uh, it, clearly there's some sand in the gears of immigration in the United States. Some of it, uh, much of it might, is appropriate in dealing with a number of uh, issues with the immigration system. But if you think you're gonna cut the number of immigrants and grow GDP, those two things don't go together. And so at the Dallas Fed, we've been big advocates of redoing our immigration system in the United States to make it more skill-based and employer-based, uh, much more like Canada. But we think immigration is a critical part of this story. So that's number one, aging. Number two, uh, technology and technology-enabled disruption having a big impact on your industry, uh, I, I think, uh, related to lagging education and skills training in the United States. And the point of this is, through most of our lives, it's not a news story that technology is replacing people, fine. But also now because of distributed computing, meaning you have in the palm of your hand more computing power than most companies did 10, 15 years ago, the power has shifted and there are many more disruptive platforms, technology enabled, that are uh, affecting the way goods and services are sold, limiting pricing power of businesses, and motivating businesses to invest even more in technology to try to compete. We call it disruption. The reason it's a big deal, I'm not worried that businesses are gonna have a hard time adapting to this. They are and they'll continue to and they'll do a good job, but it has a big effect on the workforce in the United States. If you've got a college education or better, uh, Technology may actually help you during your career. You might, you might have some trauma <laughs> periods, but you're very likely to see your income and your productivity go up in your career, aided by technology. If you're one of the 46 million workers in this country, though, that has a high school education or lower, 
you're increasingly seeing technology mean your job is either being restructured or eliminated. Think a call center worker that makes $55,000 a year with benefits. Those jobs are going away. But this is going on across industries. And my concern is we lag the world in math, science, and reading. We're 25th now out of 35 industrialized nations. And we've improved skills training, but not nearly fast enough to keep up with this trend of technology and technology-enabled disruption. And what does it mean? This is where you see record income inequality, wealth inequality, and a lot of people feeling that capitalism isn't working for them. It's, it's typically among the group that has lower levels of educational attainment, uh, and they're finding uh, that their productivity actually and their incomes over their careers might be going down. So productivity in the United States is sluggish, and it's not making up for slowing workforce growth. My, our answer at the Dallas Fed is to emphasize improve education, early childhood literacy, college readiness, and beef up skills training even more than we have to make it a viable alternative. We've got a gigantic skills gap in the United States and it's growing, and every one of those jobs that goes unfilled is just lower GDP. Two more trends and I'll stop. Third trend is globalization. And so globalization is not new. Uh, and, and the issue is globalization um, is, being, uh, is being blamed today. If you're one of the people in the United States whose job is being disrupted or eliminated, uh, the narrative in the U.S. now, it's probably due to immigration or a, or a lousy trade deal. It's globalization is why you're losing your job. That was probably true 15 years ago. Today, our research suggests that if your job's being disrupted or eliminated, it's probably not due to globalization. It's due to technology and technology-enabled disruption, probably going on within the borders of the United States. And the reason I mention this, if we get this diagnosis wrong, we're gonna make very poor policy decisions, which will cause us to grow more slowly. And we think globalization, and that means uh, people, integration of people globally, trade, uh, capital flows is essential, and we think a big opportunity for the United States, not a threat, a big opportunity, and we need to take advantage of it because workforce growth is slowing and productivity is sluggish, and we're not making the investments in our people to keep up. Globalization has been a big opportunity for either being, we being a magnet for talent or for trading around the world and so we'll talk more about that. That's the third thing we're watching. And then the last thing is, none of this would matter all that much if we weren't so darn highly leveraged. So I mentioned the consumer's in good shape, households have deleveraged over the last 10 years, that's good. Uh, corporates are historically highly leveraged. That's something I'm concerned about, and I think it's likely to be an amplifier in a downturn, but at least the financial sector has been deleveraged and so I don't think this is a systemic risk, but it's a concern. The one area that's striking is the government sector. Debt held by the public of the US government is now 77% of GDP, um, and the present value of unfunded entitlements is now $59 trillion and growing. It was 46 trillion when I started this job four years ago. I mean, just in, in four years, it's gone from 46 to 59. I don't think this is sustainable, the only reason we get away with it is because the dollar is the world's reserve currency and people need to overweight in dollars. But it, the point is, if you've got slowing workforce growth and sluggish uh, productivity, it means you're going to have sluggish GDP growth. Uh, we think potential growth in the United States at the Dallas Fed, we think it's one and three quarters now, 2%. And if we don't fix these things, it's on its way down to 1.615. And it wouldn't matter all that much if we weren't so highly leveraged, every day we grow at even 2%, we just get more leveraged and, and pile on. This looks like a pretty young group. So we're just piling on debt and uh, future tax obligations on all of you and my kids and our grandkids, and we don't think it's sustainable at the Dallas Fed, so I flag it. Climate change would be the fifth thing I'd mention, and I can talk a lot about it, and we've written a lot about it, and I think that is increasingly becoming a major trend that businesses all through this country, uh, civic leaders, mayors, governors, 
and the country in general is going to have to deal with because it's having a big effect, by the way, on this state in terms of hurricanes, drought, flood, uh, fires in California, and it's starting to have a big impact uh, and will have a greater impact in the years ahead on economic activity. So we watch it very carefully. So I'm just trying to cheer you up <laughs> during your lunch. They're not serving, out, not serving alcohol today, right? So, you know, I, which is probably appropriate. It's just lunch. Even, even I don't drink at lunch. But uh, this is sort of, these are the concerns. So, um, um, for us to grow at one and three quarters, two percent is about potential right now. Monetary policy can help make sure we grow at potential, but monetary policy by itself isn't enough to get us where we grow, where potential growth improves. There we need education, skills, training, improving uh, 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 workforce growth, infrastructure spending, we're about three trillion underinvested in the United States. Uh, we need, a, and trade, globalization, our policies, all those are opportunity for us to grow faster. Oh, and, um, and so I always call those things out because we need the whole package if we're gonna have a more prosperous future. And with that, let me stop and I'm gonna talk about Texas and specifically and a bunch of other stuff. So let's talk about Texas. All right. What do you so, think about Texas? So the irony is all these trends, I, ominous trends I just talked about, tech, Texas is bucking many of these trends. And so the most important of which is uh, workforce growth. Uh, the story of Texas is a story of migration. Uh, the population of the state was, say, two and 22 million 10 years ago. It's on its way to 29 million now. We think at the Dallas Fed over the next 20, 25 years, we're going to approach 40 million people. And you know, you say, oh, gee, sure. Well, I can go through, I'm from Kansas. So let me give you the trend growth in Kansas for the last 10 years. Three, two, nine, three, three, one, three, two, nine, flat. And the prospects are not that great. And there's 35 or 40 other states in the country, uh, think Illinois, uh, you know, New Jersey, down the list, whose population growth is flat to down. If population growth is flat to down, it means workforce growth is sluggish. You don't have the tax base. You can't invest in uh, education and a lot of other priorities. Texas has got uh, the ability uh, to do all those things because we've got migration and population growth. Um, and, I, and I'm quite optimistic Texas will outperform the country for the foreseeable future and, unless, we, uh, unless we screw it up. And what do I mean by that? I think we've got to improve our own educational attainment. Texas notably lags the country in math, science, and reading. So the country lags the world, Texas lags the country, we've got to fix this. And that's why the recent education reform in the state, we've, we spent a lot of time in Austin, I think it's, it's welcome. Uh, and it starts with early childhood literacy and improving the whole ecosystem through skills training. And, uh, and we've got the highest number of uninsured in, in the United States. We have a number of healthcare issues, which we spent a lot of time working on. But we can fix all these things if we choose to because we've got population growth. So I'm very optimistic, actually, about the future of Texas. You know, everyone, we're really uh, privileged to have Rob sit at the Fed. As you heard in his bio, he spent a lot of years and rose to the position of vice chair at Goldman Sachs. So he comes from a private sector perspective, and that means a lot to all of us in the room, and he gives a very unique view of both the public sector and the private sector and how to, how to work solutions with this. So Rob, you've identified the issues. So walk through those four major items and give everyone a few sound bites. So what are the solutions? So we'll take them in order. Uh, on population growth, the, I mentioned briefly a couple of them. Uh, we, we've got to do more to get, uh, uh, sorry about that, prime age, prime age workers back in the workforce. One of the reasons why the Fed, and I've, been, and I've been a supporter and been willing to run the economy hotter, is we're getting people who've been out of the workforce into the workforce. And by running hotter, we're hopeful they will stay in the workforce and they get enough training and get bonded to, the, to, the, to having a job that they'll stay in for the foreseeable future. So uh, there are those kinds of things, but there's no uh, substitute for the fact uh, 
we go all throughout this state where people are struggling to get into the workforce, it's either lack of available childcare, lack of training, uh, the weak math, science, and reading, uh, and transportation is an issue. And the other big thing is that we talked about immigration. And so, um, uh, in particular, I think we're gonna have to sort out, it's politically sensitive, obviously, but we're gonna have to sort out how we, uh, how we deal with immigration in that one of the distinctive competencies of the United States has been an ability to attract and retain people from outside this country. They come for higher education, they come at all levels, and they come here, they enter the workforce, and they become leaders of our society. My grandparents were not born here. They, were, they came from another country, and I think many people in this audience have the same experience. We're jeopardizing to some extent that, uh, that competence. So that's workforce growth. Second on productivity I mentioned, we, we, I think it starts with education. Uh, we've got to improve math, science, and reading. We've got to get more kids starting first grade at gr reading at grade level, so that's expanded pre-K, Head Start, uh, programs that focus on ages zero to five. And we've got to continue beefing up skills training. Fortunately, you know, we've got a lot of great examples, you know, Dallas, Community College, Joe May does an incredible job. Uh, Houston, Greater Houston Partnership does a great job. And that's great, but the skills gap is still growing. So as good as, as well as we're doing, we need to beef up skills training even more. That would help GDP growth. On globalization, I'll stay away from, uh, uh, from some of the more sensitive issues other than to say, I, I think the trade dispute with China is quite appropriate and trying to get a level, level playing field. You could debate the tactics, but, but I'll stay away from that. It's not my job to do that. But I have said, and we have said for years, the US would be well served to segment its trade relationships. And we're finally now just doing that, but it's been a little late. What do I mean by that? The trade relationship with Mexico and Canada, particularly Mexico, is essential to US competitiveness it is dramatically different than the China relationship in that it's an intermediate goods relationship. It's predominantly goods that are going back and forth across the border. Over 50% of that trading relationship is intermediate goods, which our research shows allow businesses to add jobs in the United States and allow US businesses to take share from Asia. And we've, um, we finally do have USMCA but this is why this Mexico trade threat just a couple of months ago really took the wind out of the sails of many businesses we talked to because that integrated supply chain and logistical relationship with Mexico would have been jeopardized and it's essential for a wide range of businesses in the United States. And so we, we think the, the fight with China makes a lot of sense and is appropriate intellectual property rights, technology transfer, we're less concerned at the Fed about uh, the size of the, the trade deficit. We're not sure that necessarily uh, means you're gonna grow slower or means it's unfair, but we'll stay, I'll stay away from that. But we think if you're gonna fight that fight, we should be shoring up our trade relationships with Mexico, Canada, and Europe and our allies. Uh, and so I think we're now getting there but I think we're growing a little more slowly the last couple, three years than we would have because it's been murkier. So that's the second part. Um, uh, and on the government debt thing, what can I say? Uh, we're gonna have to find ways to grow faster. That would help deleverage. And uh, it's politically sensitive, but entitlement reform and other ways to moderate our debt growth. This is why on the tax, uh, tax law change we talked about, I referred to earlier. The corporate tax reform, uh, our work at the Dallas Fed suggests that that should yield benefits to the United States for years to come. We haven't seen it because probably these trade tensions have, have made business and businesses reluctant to invest. But if we can get some of that cleared up, uh, the corporate tax reform should for a long time cause businesses more likely to domicile here and invest here. We're just not seeing evidence of it yet, but I think we will. On the other hand, the individual tax cut late in an economic cycle, uh, it was our prediction at the time it would likely lead to a short-term bump. 
and we would head right back down to tread growth. And there was a very large bipartisan spending bill as part of that stimulus, bipartisan, I'll emphasize, which we think by itself added a half a percent to GDP growth. The problem was, again, late cycle gives you a short-term bump, and then you go right back down to potential. So that's where we are now. We're back down to potential growth, except we probably added a couple of trillion dollars over the horizon to uh, government debt. We're just gonna have to start finding ways to, be, to moderate our debt growth. And oh, by the way, if we have a downturn or recession, deficits are gonna get bigger and not smaller. So, um, so I'll stop there. Well, <clears throat> that's a good place. So half the room did not raise their hand about looking at the stock market. Yeah, it's interesting. Because they're invested in hard assets. Yeah. That's great. Let's get a little applause for hard assets. I mean, come on, let's just get it going a little bit. All right. But what they really are focused on is we have an elongated economic cycle. Right. So all of the investors in commercial real estate that fuel most of the businesses out here are and have been for the last five years calling for the end of an economic cycle. We've been too long relative to past cycles. It has to end. If you run a public company, the boards have been saying, you better get your house in order, delever. So I want to come back to the corporate debt comment that you made. Well, we're not doing that, but yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so how do economic cycles end? Is there a normal end point, or does something macro come in and shock the system to end it? Yeah, so, so let, let's work backwards. The one, the one thing I, I do know, if the consumer's strong and the consumer is spending, pretty hard to have a recession, okay? Because it's 70% of the economy. And as we sit here today, the, the, the good news is the consumer is very strong. We have a very tight labor market, which gives some sort of tailwind to consumer. And household balance sheets are in much better shape. So if you ask me whether there was going to be a recession, whether it's going to happen in 2020, I'd, I, I think for me, I still think it's unlikely. And I still, still think we have a good chance to grow here for the next couple of All years. Right, well, let's end there. I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> so what could, what could derail it? Um, yeah. What could derail it? I'll give you a few things, because at the Fed, and I was just on a call right before I came here, I'm on the Financial Stability Committee at the Fed, and we were just debating this. So what are some things we're watching? Uh, it, it would take some kind of, listen, if God forbid you had some external global event, um, that could create a shock. Uh, if global growth gets weak enough, we're not immune to it, okay? So um, uh, we're somewhat insulated from weaker global growth, but 45%, uh, many of the tenants in these buildings, 45% of their revenue of the S&P 500 comes from outside the United States. So that's one thing to watch. Uh, and what would cause that to happen if trade, if some of these trade issues don't clear, clear it up and global growth gets weaker, my guess is that will cause a more severe slowing here. And then you've got the issue uh, with two sectors. One, cap rates are very low and, uh, and real estate related debt is, is historically high. And corporate debt to GDP is non-financial corporate debt to GDP, which is related to that, is historically high. So one of the things I'm watching um, is if you had a, uh, if you have a, if you, if we grow less than potential, if we start growing less than one and three quarters, one percent, with all this debt, we probably will grow even more slowly than we would have because this debt will be an amplifier of a slowdown, i.e. more cash flow will have to go to service debt. The other thing I'm watching is whether some of these big triple B credits, triple B debt has tripled in the last 10 years. Uh, and I watch, and I, can, I watch specifically triple D names because what I'm worried about is if you have two or three big triple B downgrades, the single B and the double B market just isn't big enough to absorb two or three big downgrades. Uh, where would those downgrades come? Probably the, they could come from energy. If global growth is weak uh, and the price of oil is lower, it's directly affecting that industry right now. Uh, and a number of those companies in that industry are highly leveraged. So what I'm watching is for, so, for some shock that comes from a downgrade or two or three, credit spreads widen. 
and if credit spreads widen and say persistently wide, uh, that, that would create a tightening in financial conditions which would, could also cause the slowing. So those are sort of the triggers that I'm watching. What you tend to watch is those come under the heading of excesses and imbalances, yeah. high level of corporate debt, high level of real estate debt, low cap rates, um, uh, you know, you can debate. I, I, I'm really not pointing specifically at financial markets. The market, the, the economy can tolerate a sell-off in financial markets. But what I'm worried about is this debt that causes spreads to widen. And then if spreads widen and stay wide, that's going to tighten financial conditions and that will create a slowing. So that's when I'm, that's probably the, that would be the main candidate I'd be watching and I am watching very carefully to just monitor how these leveraged companies are doing. Okay. But if you don't have an external shock or something like it, the economy continues on. We're in the longest economic expansion. It's been much slower than previous expansions. So net-net, it would have to be some form of external shock in some form or fashion to end it. And listen, you've got cycles where you know, you go through periods where durable goods purchases pick up, durable goods, you know, cars, other durable goods, and consumers start taking on a little bit too much debt, and then there needs to be a retrenchment. Uh, it's not the end of the world. We will have another recession, and we will probably have another recession here in the next X number of years. I just don't know what the X is. But, but on the other hand, there's no law that says that this expansion can't go on for longer. And by the way, the reason the recovery, in my opinion, has been so sluggish is one, we spent the first number of years of the recovery with the household sector deleveraging. So households needed to save more and they needed to be more careful and that's the biggest engine of the economy. We're now through that um, and the reason today we're still sluggish is demographics and sluggish productivity. And, um, and I don't see that changing, by the way, unless we make some significant policy changes which we can do, we just aren't yet doing them. So let's talk uh, about negative interest rates. Yep. So many- Not a fan. Well, tell us your real opinion. I mean, I, uh, I, I think it's hard for us, well, it's, just, it's hard for me to get my head around that. Yeah. And so as we think about, let's just assume that we have continued slowing growth. Historically, that would mean we would be easing in the Fed but you're comfortable with the current rate policy that was just set with the Fed this month, <clears throat> last month. Yeah. So if we're gonna grow at a more moderated pace and we see what's happening in Europe with negative rates, if, how do we think about that? How do you, what, what is the intent behind it? So on the one hand, I think, uh, um, reason I asked a little bit about watching the financial markets. For those of you who do watch the financial markets every day, and I'm sure you watch the Treasury curve, many of you, the 10-year Treasury, you may recall, back in November, not that long ago, November of 18, was 325, the 10-year Treasury. Today, it's a little, it's rallying a little bit, so it's, it's backing up a little bit today, but it's in the 180s. So you've had about 150 basis point rally in the 10-year Treasury. Why has that happened? And I think the primary reason, it's not that global liquidity has increased so much since November, it's expectations of future growth are more sluggish. Why? Primarily because of these trade tensions and decelerating global growth, okay? And so if we're in a period where we're not gonna have a recession but we're gonna have sluggish growth, I think you should expect the treasury curve is gonna stay at historically uh, lower levels in terms of rate. And so uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, I, 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 from, I for one, do n I'm not convinced at all that negative rates have helped Europe or have helped Japan. Uh, and I do believe they risk doing great damage to the financial system uh, and the health of intermediaries, which are essential to the economy. Also in the United States, we have a big money market uh, industry, and a lot of our companies, unlike uh, around the world, are use commercial paper. They issue a commercial paper, which depends directly on a big liquid money market, a healthy money market industry. So I don't see negative rates. I don't see me being supportive of negative rates. Uh, never say never, but I, don't, I, I question whether that's a tool that's going to be useful. And the other comment I would make is 
I think there's a danger in general, and this is part of it, of central banks trying to do too much. So the reason I mention to you all these other policies away from monetary policy, um, monetary policy uh, cannot be the only economic policy we have. In Europe, they desperately need fiscal policy. And there's been a lot of talk, as you know, about Germany, maybe with fiscal stimulus hasn't happened yet. But because there hasn't been broader economic policy, the ECB, the European Central Bank, has tried to do extraordinary things. And I think we're at the stage where uh, Europe may be much better served if the ECB tried to do less and there was more action by fiscal policy and other structural reforms away from monetary policy. So for me, the reason I call out these issues everywhere I go, we're, we're at the point here where the U.S. monetary policy has a key role to play, but we, we cannot, uh, there's a limit to how far I'd be willing to go to use monetary policy to address some of our challenges. I would rather call out that we need structural reforms and other economic policies, because monetary policy is not a very effective tool to, to improve potential growth, and it creates a lot of excesses and distortions uh, that I think may, uh, may jeopardize future growth. And so I want to show some restraint, and that's why I'm glad after this most recent adjustment, which we had a big debate about uh, at the FOMC, as, as has been reported, uh, I felt strongly that we should now uh, stand pat for the time being at one and a half and one and three quarters. And I think we're, monetary policy makers, central bankers need to show restraint, I think, in the future. And there needs to be broader economic policy away from monetary policy. So for everyone here, if we're looking at the base index, so the US Treasury risk-free rate, it judges our borrowing cost in the, in the industry to a large extent. One of the primary movers of that, in your mind, is expectation of future growth. Is the, for me, it's the number one determinant. It's not the only determinant. Global liquidity, obviously, is a big factor. But expectations of future growth is the primary reason why I believe the Treasury curve is historically low. Okay. All right. Well, let's open it up to your questions, which are way more important than my questions. So let's, uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Bill. That's a shocker that you'd be the first one to ask the question. Do you worry about the $16 trillion in sovereign debt? I mean, with all these that buy our debt, that makes me nervous. Thank you. So, oh, yeah. so something like 23% of global debt, which you're referring to as negative interest rates, uh, which is, is hard to get your head around. Uh, and. So the fact that, and it's indicative of global growth being so slow, and it's also indicative of unusually extraordinary central bank action. Uh, but I don't think it's a very healthy thing. Uh, now, I, I hope, it, it, the only positive that can come from it, I would think, is if, we, if we're underinvested in infrastructure, or if countries are underinvested in infrastructure, means they can borrow at extraordinarily low rates and invest in the future of their country. Um, but other than that, I think it creates a lot of excesses and distortions, and it means people can't put their money in savings. They've got to be risk takers, even at stages in life where they shouldn't be. And so uh, it makes us more vulnerable to uh, a shock or something that causes a dramatic sell-off in financial markets and in turn causing financial conditions to tighten and a slowing in the economy. So this is, this is an extraordinary situation, but I think it should be an alarm. It should be a red light, flashing light for policymakers away from monetary policy to say maybe we need broader action, structural reforms, fiscal policy, infrastructure where appropriate if we're gonna grow uh, at levels uh, and get more normal level of rates. Um, the U.S. dollar has been basically the unofficial currency of the world for as long as you can think about it. There have been news articles recently that some major European countries, Asian countries, are thinking about breaking away from the pact, potentially not using U.S. currency as the basis of their decision making. 
Does that concern you? What are your thoughts of like how that positions us in the future? So there's no question the dollar has been the world's reserve currency. And what that means is if you're a global investor, you need to overweight uh, dollars, or you have been overweighting dollars. Uh, and that's been a great thing for the United States in terms of our cost of our debt, despite the fact that our debt keeps going like this. Um, it, yes, if there, if something, we, we right now have a policy, policies, forget whether they're bad or good, that are heavily focused on tariffs and uh, also sanctions. And so what happens is countries around the world, and I travel a lot outside the U.S., in some cases, uh, countries are, are looking at alternatives so they're not as vulnerable to tariffs and sanctions. Uh, I'm still hopeful that it will be an extended period of time that will be the world's reserve currency, but because of technology, as well as some of these geopolitical issues, I think we need to plan for the day where we're not. And what does that mean? If we had to pay 200 basis points more on 20 trillion of debt, that's, that's a lot of money. It's $400 billion a year. That would be devastating. And so I think while th times are good, before we get to a crisis, we would be well served to moderate our debt growth. Any yes, yep. well, way in the back? Yeah, we, we'll get some more here. There you go. Issues that uh, are really uh, at the government level, i.e. Congress, when you talk about the fiscal change, fiscal policy, get away from monetary policy, how much optimism, if any, do you have? And is there, share? clearly you have a lot of research, you guys are articulate, you're very bright. Do they listen to you? Do they care? Do they? Do you have much? Do they have much? Uh, do you have much confidence in in that sort of change so, coming anytime so soon? So let me let me talk where I'm optimistic and where I'm I'm not sure. So you should know one of the things. Part of my job, I meet with elected and appointed officials on both sides of the aisle at the federal level every time I'm in D.C., which is every six weeks, uh, at the state level and at the local level, and it's unusual to have a meeting with an elected or appointed official on either side of the aisle where they do not enthusiastically agree with everything I just went through. I mean, you're not gonna get any pushback on this stuff. So then the question is, you know, are they able to get something done? My job and our job at the Fed, what I try to do is share our research, give them facts so that they can, you know, so that they understand what the issues are. So. I won't even get into, and it's not appropriate for me to get into what's going on in D.C. and some of the challenges there in getting something done. Where I've found that it's, uh, it's much more likely to get something done, though, is at the state and the local level. So what's done at the state and local level? In particular, education. If you're going to improve education and skills training, that has to be done at the state and local level. So uh, I'm, I, I am very optimistic. I'm hopeful. Uh, and this recent uh, education reform in the state of Texas encourages me more that, uh, that we're gonna do what needs to be done to improve the math, science, and reading of our population here in Texas, um, as well as improve skills training. It's gotta be done states throughout the country, but, but, but mayors, local business people have a big role to play, governors, that whole group has been instrumental in the state of Texas and has been instrumental in other states. And with that, with, on that subject, I'm very optimistic that we can, uh, we can make progress. The part I'm concerned about is we got, we got 50 states and the quality of the progress is very uneven. And the other issue is there's a whole bunch of states I just mentioned, they just don't have the money for it. And the reason they don't have the money, they don't have population growth. You know, we, we don't talk enough in this country about how essential population growth is. Dallas is thriving because we got population growth. Texas is thriving because of it. And give me a state and you tell me, tell me what the population trends are, I'll have a pretty darn good idea about what the economic future is. Not completely, but pretty good idea. And the United States, because of aging, 
our population rate, and you, if those who read my essays, we document the rate of growth in, po in workforce and population is going like this. Um, and if, if we just don't, it just means we don't have the economic, we don't have the money to solve a lot of these issues. Uh, that's a problem. And so there's a lot of business people in this room. I am a business person. And I say to every business person, I try to act this way myself, uh, means business people, I think, have to do more also. And I think if we don't, there's going to be a big, there already is some backlash, but there's going to be a bigger backlash, I think, against business unless we play a, a very prominent leadership role and are seen to play that role to try to address some of these issues that can be addressed. Um, and, and I've been impressed, at least in this state, with the role leaders in business have played to be actively involved, and they're a big part of the reason why we're making progress. So, can you hear me? Oh, there yes, we go. Sir. Yeah, so I'm kind of an outlier here. I'm not related to the real estate market, got a last minute invite, hence the orange jacket. But I have a question about corporate borrowers. Um, you know, post-tax reform, there's been a lot of share repurchases. Yeah. Just curious if you see value with those. I mean, there's just been tons of dollars going in there. Yeah, so here's what's happening to businesses. So, um, and I don't want to, well, I'll, I'll generalize because in the, in the interest of time. Um, I talked about technology, technology-enabled disruption, lack of pricing power. Uh, for those who do watch corporate profits, you would see that in the year 2019, corporate profit growth is basically flat, even with major share repurchase. Okay, why is that? Businesses are struggling to, to pass on um, cost increases in terms of prices. They're facing margin erosion. And so what are they doing to deal with it? They're investing more in technology. They're doing a lot more mergers. There's a reason you're seeing a record level of merger activity. They need scale. If you're getting squeezed in your margins, What's one thing you do? Get more scale, merge, combine, get bigger. And that, that, is a, that is a big trend we're seeing. And the other thing they're doing is buying back stock to sort of mask some of this margin erosion, and it's a way to keep their earnings per share growth. And by the way, corporate activism, I used to be a, do raid defense for many years in my career. Corporate activism is at, a, at, a, at its zenith right now. So it's unusual to talk to, when I talk to a CEO who doesn't have a corporate activist in their stock. And what's they want? They want higher earnings per share, higher stock price. So corporates are under a lot of pressure. So this helps explain the behavior of what they're doing. Uh, and this helps explain to some extent why they're using debt to fund share repurchase because it means higher earnings per share and the cost of debt is very low. They're acting you know, reasonably rationally but is it, is it good for business investments? It hasn't been this year. It's a great question. I think we're almost out of time, Bill. Uh, or do you have two, two? Okay. Where are you putting your money? <laughs> okay. So when you're making an investment, are you bullish? Are you, I mean, like, okay. I mean, you're seeing everything. Are you aggressively investing? Are you hiding under the couch? So, so I used, to be, I used to be at a big securities firm, and I ran a hedge fund, chairman of a hedge fund for many years, and I would have been very glad to share my views on that in the past. But in this job, I'm a little more careful about that, and I just don't, I don't do that. I, I would say this. Um, you know, I'm optimistic about the future of the United States, but we've got to address these issues. Uh, as an investor, you can assume rates are going to be lower for longer than people might have thought, but not for a great reason because growth is going to be a little more sluggish. Uh, and so there's going to be plenty of opportunities. And by the way, people who worry there aren't going to be enough jobs or opportunities for business, look what's going on right now. We've got lots of disruption. We've got uh, innova innovation, maybe not as much business dynamism as we'd like. Um, and we've got plenty of jobs. We just don't have enough investment in our human capital to get to where the opportunities are and the job growth is. So I'm optimistic about the future of, of the country. I probably agree with some of the things Warren Buffett has said. I think it's usually a mistake. It's proven to be a mistake, and I think it will continue to be a mistake to bet against the United States. But we've got to make some decisions and trade-offs so that we can grow at a healthier rate. The, uh, oh, go ahead, okay. Um, my question is, what's your plan B? 
because we haven't done any change in the last 20 years about spending, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't appear that, at least from my vantage point, that we see any changes today in the political environment. I think it's getting worse rather than better. So how in business people should we prepare ourselves for the more difficult times that are coming? So, so you're seeing in action my plan B today. This is my plan B, meaning uh, my, what I think my job is and as a business person, is to try to identify these issues, do research on them, convene groups to do something about them, try to get action where we can, raise hell on others you know, to try to raise awareness, uh, understanding maybe nothing will get done. And then the other part of, of this is to make sure the Fed, and my job as a central banker, that we're making good decisions on monetary policy. But what you'll see me continue to do uh, in this job is I'll be vocal about uh, what our research suggests we need to do differently in this country if we're gonna grow faster. And I'll be meeting extensively ad infinitum with elected and appointed officials on both sides of the aisle, federal, state, and local, to try to encourage them that we need to take some action. And, and I think, the, and to my business colleagues here, that's all you can do, find a, find a cause, that you have a passion for. I happen to be at the Fed, so I've got a good vehicle to do this. But find a cause that you have a passion for and get involved, including in the nonprofit space, to help at-risk groups. I think all of us can do something about it, but that's kind of, that, I'm not, I don't have any illusions to your point about something miraculously hap happening, but I, t I, I intend to keep flagging these things and, uh, and trying to do everything I can to make sure ch some positive changes get made. So I get the final question. Um, thank you, Rob, first of all, for being here. I can honestly say, having been through several Fed presidents as a former banker and now today, um, the openness in which you conduct the Federal Reserve and the way that you're engaged locally is really a blessing for all thank of us here. Nice and we really do appreciate that My leadership voice. because we're not only a business organization, we're also a nonprofit, and we work in, in a lot of community investment spaces. But to wrap this up, I would be remiss if I didn't get, have Mark Gibson, who is our guru uh, relative to capital markets, give us some perspective of exactly what you think the future looks like for this industry and give us a little bit of uh, insight as to what you see over the course of the next several months. Like now leading JLL's capital time. markets group. So but thank that, you, Mark. That is such a curveball. That was not <laughs> part of the script. It wasn't on there, Linda. This is gonna be so anticlimactic after listening to Rob. Let's give Rob a round of applause over there. Unbelievable. Come on, man. Really good. All right, in one minute or less, because we're running out of time, here's what I would say. Um, one is that it actually was heartening to me to see those of you who didn't raise your hand in watching the public market every day. And the data would back you up. So there are 40% less public companies publicly traded enterprises today than there were 17 years ago. That means private market capital has grown to such an extent that in many cases it is better to be private for a number of reasons. And we can all speculate on what those would be. So that's interesting and that ought to reduce, I'd be really curious on your position on that Rob, uh, volatility in our space, because particularly hard assets are the beneficiary of this. Um, so that's one interesting thing. The other interesting thing I would tell you structurally, because I love the way that Rob thinks, uh, it, it resonates with me when we look at, well, what are the structural drivers for commercial real estate? And the largest I can tell you is that the vast majority of long-dated owners of capital, so think of sovereign wealth funds and pension plans, et cetera, uh, they have determined that matching their assets, their long-dated liabilities, matching their long-dated liabilities with long-dated assets is a really good thing to do. And that ALM strategy, the best match for that is commercial real estate. So if you are smart about investing in commercial real estate that has a reason to exist, and you don't over-leverage so you get through a recession, it goes up every cycle. And they've seen it and we've earned that right. So therefore, our allocations to the space have doubled 
in the last seven years. And they're going to increase by 50% in the next three to five years. So the amount of disposable discretionary income sitting in open-ended and closed-end funds of commercial real estate is at a U.S. historic high, 200 billion in the United States. And at the same time, everyone is extraordinarily measured and disciplined about deploying it because of what we just heard. It's confusing. We're in an elongated cycle. It could end tomorrow. It's that kind of interesting tension that I think has kept everyone on the reservation this time. And so it looks about as good for our industry. We're very blessed to be in the commercial real estate industry. We're extraordinarily blessed to be in the state of Texas for a number of reasons. But the liquidity in our space is looking better than it has ever looked in the past. And the discipline at which we are deploying it is also extraordinarily good. And Rob was mentioning leverage in the, in the real estate space. He was thinking of residential and commercial. In the commercial space, we are 19 points less than we were in 2006 from a loan-to-value ratio. That's institutionally-owned real estate. So net-net, Linda, thanks for the curveball, I guess. I'm gonna have to talk to you about that. Uh, but in any event, we look pretty darn good. So thanks, everyone, for your time here. Thanks again, Rob. That's all for today's episode. I'd like to thank Robert Kaplan and Mark Gibson for their talk, as well as our speaker series sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News for their support. Subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts, follow Trek on social media, and let us know what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.